Okay. Is it good? Okay, if you have your Bibles tonight, I'd ask you to open up to the book of Luke. We're going to go to the New Testament tonight. As you're going to Luke, I want to ask a couple questions first. Uh, who is Luke? Who is Luke? And how do we actually know that Luke wrote this gospel? So there's a couple things I want to look at before we get going in what the, uh, in what the word actually says. So, who is Luke? Luke is only mentioned three times specifically by name in the Bible. Those three times, what can we get from those three times? In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, 2 Timothy 4, 11, and Philemon, verse 24. Those are the three specific times that Luke is mentioned by name. In Colossians 4, 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. 2 Timothy 4.11 Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Philemon 24 As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Those are the only three times that Luke is mentioned by name. Specifically. So what can we get from those three verses? Who is Luke? Well, we know from Colossians 4.14 that Luke is a doctor. It says Luke, the beloved physician. So we know Luke is a medical doctor. We also know from Colossians chapter 4 uh, what Paul's doing there. He's writing and sending his greetings to the church of Colossae and everybody that's with him, he's sending his greetings. In verse 11 of chapter 4, he lists the guys that are with him that send, his greeting, send their greetings with him. Those guys in verse 11 are all... Jews. Verses 12 through 15 list all the guys that are with him that send their greetings that are Gentiles. So we know Luke is listed in verse 14, so Luke is a Gentile. So we know that Luke is a doctor, and we know that Luke is a Gentile. We also know from all three of these verses that Luke is a traveling companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. So we know he's a doctor. We know he's a Gentile, and we know that he's a traveling companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. So, let's look at verse, the first four verses of Luke and see what else we can find out about him. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So what are these first four verses? These first four verses are a prologue. It's the only gospel to have a prologue. So let's assume for a minute that Luke did write this gospel. And we're going to come back in just a little bit and try to prove that he actually did. But let's just assume for a second that he did. Let's say he wrote this. It is a classic way of writing in Greek to begin with a prologue. Well, we know if Luke is a Gentile, he's coming from a Greek mindset. He's not coming from the Jewish mindset like the other gospel writers did. So he's, this is only one with a prologue. So what's he trying to do in this prologue? Uh, in this prologue, it's a classical way of writing in Greek, and it's also written in the literary classical Greek. It's written with a highly educated form of Greek. So the person that wrote this had to be highly educated, and we know that Luke, being a doctor, was highly educated. So that fits. What is in this prologue? 
he admits, he says that there are already other accounts of Jesus' ministry here on earth written and recorded down. He says they're already out there. It's very possible, most commentators think at this time, that Matthew is already written down and in circulation. So he's saying he's recognizing that those are already there. Also in this prologue, he's saying where he got his sources from. He went straight to the source. He went to the eyewitnesses that were with Jesus. It's very possible that he spoke with Matthew. It's very possible he spoke with Peter. It's very possible he spoke with Mary, his mother. When Paul was in prison in Caesarea, when he was there for two years, Luke would have had access to those eyewitnesses in Jerusalem. He could have traveled back and forth. So it's possible that he went straight to the guys that were with Jesus. He said that he went to the eyewitnesses that were with him, the first-hand account. He's saying, I have a credible source. I've gone and I've researched it. He says he has carefully investigated and researched everything from the beginning. So Luke's establishing that he is a legitimate writer. And we know that Luke is a scholar because he's a doctor. So how do we know? How do we know that Luke wrote this gospel? Nowhere in this gospel and nowhere in the book of Acts does the author identify himself by name. So how did it get the title? The Gospel According to Luke. There's a couple ways. The early church. The early church is the one that established the title for this gospel. They gave it to Luke. They knew. They knew who wrote it. They were convicted and they knew who did it. So they gave it the gospel according to Luke. But not only that, not only tradition, but also we can, uh, we can reason it through. We know that uh, Luke was not an eyewitness. He says he was not an eyewitness. If you look in Acts, well actually, let's go back real quick. If we know that if uh, whoever wrote the book of Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So if we take a look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The former account I made... O Theophilus. So whoever is writing the book of Acts is referring to the book that he wrote before to Theophilus. So if we can say that Luke wrote Acts, then we know that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. So we know that Luke was not an eyewitness. He says he wasn't an eyewitness. He went and interviewed the eyewitnesses that were in Jesus' ministry. That is recorded in the book of Luke. But if you go through the book of Acts, starting in chapter 16, the plural pronoun changes to we. So whoever wrote the book of Acts, who also wrote the book of Luke, was not there during Jesus' ministry, but he was there from chapter 16 on of Acts with Paul in his ministries. So, who was with Paul? Who is a list of all the guys that were with Paul throughout all of his journeys? If you go through and you make a list of them, the list is Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Timothy, Titus, Silas, Epaphras, Barnabas, Sopater, Segundus, Gaius, Tychicus, Trophimus, and Luke. So that's the list of all the guys. It's a big list of guys. How can we narrow it down to Luke? How do we know which one it was? Well, all but four of these guys are listed in the book of Acts. So since we know that the author did not identify himself, he did not list his own name. So that narrows it down to Demas, Epaphras, Titus, and Luke. Well, we know that Demas, if you look in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he forsake Paul loving the world. So he wasn't with Paul all the way to the end. So that leaves Epaphras, Titus, and Luke. Well, Epaphras and Titus, if you look throughout the New Testament, was not with Paul all the time. 
so that it only leaves Luke. So, with Luke being left, and with the early church giving credit to Luke for this gospel, we can know that Luke wrote this gospel. So why? Why did Luke write this gospel? It says, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, and having a perfect understanding of what happened, he was compelled to write. He had to do it. He was compelled. He had the information. He wanted to get it down. Luke wrote the most thorough and most complete gospel going from the birth of John the Baptist all the way through, if you go all the way through the book of Acts, Paul's preaching in Rome. It's a time span that covered over 60 years. He researched it all. He went to the guys that were there. So, he's writing to Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? We don't know. We do not know who Theophilus is for sure. There's several theories that are out there. I'm going to give you three that are there. We don't know who he is, though. It's possible that Theophilus was Luke's previous owner. In those days, wealthy people had doctors as slaves. So if he was Luke, if Luke, uh, Theophilus was Luke's owner, it's possible that Theophilus was saved by the preaching of Paul. And he may very well may be that he gave Luke to Paul so that Paul would have a doctor on his missionary journeys. That's one possibility. If you look at what Theophilus means, it means lover of God, if you break it down. It could be that um, Luke is protecting somebody. Theophilus could be a code name for someone that Luke is trying to protect from persecution by writing these letters to him. It could also be that Theophilus could be a group of people. It could be lovers of God, and he could be writing to a whole group. But the, the thing is, we don't know whoever Theoph- who Theophilus is, but whoever he is... Luke is saying, I am going to give you a carefully documented account of what happened. That's what Luke's goal is. So verse 5, let's get into the story of what uh, chapter 1 has. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abihah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So, What's going on in these days? What is happening in these days? These are dark days for Israel. Israel has not heard from the Lord for 400 years. There has not been a prophet on the scene for 400 years up to this point. Herod. Herod's the one sitting on the throne. Herod's ruling over them. Herod is a cruel, mean man. Herod would kill his own kids if he felt like they were a threat to his throne. So that's the type of things that these Israelites are dealing with right now. They have not heard from God, and they're dealing with a king that is completely brutal, that has no um, qualms about wiping them out. In verse 7 it says, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So in this culture, at that time, it was considered a curse from God if you did not have a child. So, if you didn't have a child, people would think, what horrible thing have you done? What horrible thing have you done to make God do this to you, to put you under a curse? But what does the word say here? We know the word says that these people, Zacharias and Elizabeth, were righteous 
and blameless. So we know that they didn't do anything that would have caused God to want to curse them. So I think we can take this as a warning. Uh, we should not judge things too quickly. We should not judge people from the outside. We don't know what's going on by the situations that are going on in their life. Just because someone is extremely poor or if somebody's going through a difficult situation does not mean that something's wrong. God may have them there for a purpose. You know, what does the Lord want? He wants His power to be revealed. He wants us to seek Him, and He wants the people that are around us that don't know Him to come to Him. He wants everybody to be saved. So, that you know, He may put us in a tight situation. If you remember when the Israelites were coming out of Exodus, they followed the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. As He brought them out of Egypt, He could have taken them easily around the Red Sea and to the Promised Land through the wilderness. It would have been a 10-day journey. Instead, he took them to a place between Pihahirath and Migdal up to the Red Sea, a place where they were boxed in. It was a dumb place to go militarily. And what did, what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh saw that they were there and he said, These guys are confused. They have no idea what they're doing. I made a mistake letting them go. Let's go get them. So he took his chariots and went after them, boxed them in from the other way, the only way that the Israelites could have got out. So why would God put them in a situation where they had no way to get out? He wanted them to seek Him. He wanted them to realize they cannot do it under their own power. What do we do when we're in difficult situations if we can get out of it? I'm going to try to get out of it myself. Every single time. I'm going to try. But if God puts us in a situation that we cannot get out of, I've got to go to Him. It's the only way. I'm going to try, but I'm going to fail myself. I've got to go to Him. That's where the Israelites are at. The only way out was for God to part the Red Sea so that they could go through on dry ground. That's where they were at. If they tried to go back through Pharaoh, they were going to get annihilated. So, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were barren. The people must have been talking about them. These guys must have had problems. What in the world did they do for God to do this to them? But we know the end of this story. We know that this is not the case at all. God was setting something up for something super to happen, as we're going to see. Verse 11. It says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. The first words from God in 400 years, Do not be afraid. God does not want us to be people of fear. He does not want us to fear man. What can man do to us? He wants us to fear him. If we're fearing God, we will not fear man. That's his first words in 400 years. Do not fear. It says, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. What prayer? What prayer was heard? I'm sure that Zacharias prayed for years for a child. But you know what? At some point, I'm sure he gave up. It says that he was well advanced in years. It kind of makes you wonder, though, how long has it been since he prayed that prayer? Was it years? Was it decades? We don't know. But it said he's well advanced in years. He's got to say, yeah, this is past. I've got to move on to something else. But God heard his prayer. He's at the altar of incense. What does the altar of incense re represent? If you remember back in the Old Testament, the altar of incense was in the tabernacle. The priest would go morning and evening and pour incense on that altar. And as it would rise up, it would be a sweet-smelling or pleasing aroma to God. 
that incense is a picture of our prayer. Our prayer is sweet to our Father. It delights our Father. He wants us to come to Him in prayer. I've used this example before many times, and I'll use it again. You guys know my little boy, Zach. He's two years old. When I come in from working all day, what does he do? He runs at me with his arms high yelling, Daddy. That's how God wants us to come to Him. He wants us to come to Him in prayer yelling, Daddy, help me. Daddy, save me. I'm comfortable in your arms. That's where God wants us to be. He wants us to come to Him like a kid comes to his dad in prayer. So how should we pray? What should our motives for prayer be? If you'd flip over with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, we're going to take a look at that real quick and we're going to come back to Luke. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, is uh, the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. So the Lord teaches them how to pray. It says in verse 5, it says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So what's Jesus telling them? He's telling them, do not be a hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a pretender. A hypocrite is a play actor. He's saying, you come to me seriously. Don't worry about who sees you. Don't just get up in front of people to pray so that they can see you and and, uh, glorify you. You come to me with a serious heart. Don't come as a hypocrite. Verse 6, he says, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What's he telling us? It's important for us to come corporately together to pray. But what's he also saying? He's saying it is essential for us to pray privately. We need to seek God in our own private lives, in our own private prayer. That's what he's saying. Verse 7, it says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. He's saying don't repeat a phrase over and over and over again. Why? What do they do when they say Hail Marys? They're repeating the same phrase over and over and over again. They're empty words. Does it mean that we don't come to Him and pray the same thing day after day? No. What about the persistent widow? She came day after day after day, but she came with a sincere heart. She came with a heart that was seeking after God. Her words were not empty. That's how God wants us to come to Him. God knows where everybody's heart's at. We can fool people on the outside, but we cannot fool God. He knows where our heart's at. We can come and make long, lengthy prayers, but if they're just empty words, what do they mean? We need to come with sincere hearts. God knows each and every one of our hearts. Whether people on the outside know what they are or not, God knows. Verse 8. It says, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. He knows what we need. We can come to Him because we aren't going to mess it up. If we come to Him with a sincere heart, He's going to answer our prayers. If we seek Him, we're going to be following Him. Verse 9, it says, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It says, Our Father. It's our personal relationship with our Father. It's a personal relationship with Him. If you look back in Exodus, when God has given the instructions for the Passover... If you go through it, there's a list. It says, a lamb, take a lamb. Then it says, take the lamb. 
Then it says, take your lamb. Who is the lamb? Jesus. John says that Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. But he says, take a lamb. There's a lot of religions in this world that claim that they have the lamb. But there is only one lamb. He says, not just, don't just take a lamb. He says, take the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus. The lamb of God. But you know what? Even the demons know that Jesus is the lamb of God. What does he say? It says, take a lamb. It says, take the lamb. It says, take your lamb. You have to have that personal relationship with Jesus. It has to be your God. That's what he's saying here. Our Father. It's our own personal relationship with God. We have a relationship with Him. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is, God's name is set apart. It's His character. It's the incomprehensible God. Verse 10, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is He my King? Is He really my King? If He's my King, I'm going to want to obey Him. I'm going to want to honor Him in everything that I do. When we say, your will be done, do I really do want to do His will? Do I really do it? If I do, His will is not a mystery. What's His will for us? His, our will, His will is for us to obey Him, us to follow Him. He gave us a great commission. We are to go out and tell people about Him. We are to deny ourselves. We are to pick up His cross and follow Him. Verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread. Notice it says, does not, it does not say, give me this day my daily bread. It says, give us. We are to be corporately minded in prayer. We are to pray for the people around us, including our enemies. That's what he's telling us to do here. We got to realize that he is our provider. The Lord himself, as he says in Genesis, will provide the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He is the lamb. He's the one that supplies our needs. He supplies everything. We need to come to Him. We should not be focused on just me. We need to be focused on the people around us. Verse 12, it says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, Christ forgave us, so we have to forgive. You know, we will not fully understand the concept of being forgiven if we don't forgive. We've got to forgive the people around us. That's what He's telling us to do. Verse 13 says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The point here is to say that uh, he's going to give us the victory. You know, as you go through that valley of temptation, we have all failed in that valley. We have all hung out there in that valley too long. But God gives us a way out. If we are to follow him, he will take us out of that valley. He fights for us. He is our victory. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We, he's already won it for us. We fight from a place from a victory. We know what the outcome is going to be. Verse 14 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This is Jesus' commentary on the prayer that he just told the disciples how to pray. we got to forgive people. If they've wronged us, we got to forgive them. Or we're not going to be forgiven ourselves. So if that's how we're supposed to pray, what actually hinders our prayers? Yeah, both of those. There's a list of them. 
James chapter 1, verse 5 through 7 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So what hinders our, what hinders our prayers? Unbelief. Unbelief hinders our prayers. James chapter 4 verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So what else hinders our prayers? Selfishness, greed. What else hinders our prayers? Isaiah chapter 59 verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. What hinders our prayers? Sin. Sin hinders our prayers. Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 3 says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of them at all? What hinders our prayers? The idols of our heart. We need to repent of those idols first and then come and turn to Him. Our focus needs to be on the giver, not on the gift. Proverbs 21 verse 13 says, Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. So if we're indifferent to those calling out for help, we will not be heard when we call out. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 says, And whenever you, st- and whenever you start praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So an unforgiving spirit hinders our prayers. If you don't forgive, you're not going to be forgiven. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding. Give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So what hinders our prayers? A wrong relationship between a husband and a wife. So what hinders our prayers? Unbelief, selfishness, sin, Idols of the heart, an unforgiving spirit, and a wrong relationship between a husband and a wife. Those all hinder our prayers. So we should not give up praying. Do not give up praying. Because at some point, Zechariah's prayer was heard. But you know what? It took a long time for that answer to come. Let's go back to Luke, verse 13. Says, but the angel of the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said, to the angel, how shall I know this? 
for I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. So what's Gabriel telling him? He's telling him, you're going to have a son. And you're just to call him John, which means God is gracious. What would you do if an angel came to you and told you you're going to have a son, your prayer is going to be answered? I can tell you what I would do, because I know. Many of you know my wife had cancer diagnosed back in 2011. She had surgery, went through chemotherapy, was told she was never going to have kids again. Zach's two years old, which means he was born in 2013. When I found out that I was having another boy, I tell you what, I was excited. I was full of joy. I was rejoicing. What does Zachariah do here? Does he rejoice? No. What question does he ask? He says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. Why would he ask that? Why is he not full of joy? It's because he doesn't believe. He is full of unbelief. Unbelief robs us of our joy. What else does unbelief rob us of? What else does unbelief do to us in our lives? It causes us to be blind. It causes us to have poison in our hearts. It causes us to be bitter. And it robs us of our joy. Why don't you take a look with me real quick back in Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 53. We're going to see what does unbelief do to us. We're going to see that it robs us of our joy. We're going to see that it blinds our eyes. And we're going to see that it puts bitterness in our hearts. Verse 53, it says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James, Jose, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. 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 Let's take a look at it. What does unbelief do? Verse 54. Let's go back and look. It says, When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? You know, what was going on around them during that time? You know, there were miracles happening. The dead were raised. The lame were walking. The blind were seeing. The deaf were hearing. There was obvious miracles going on. It was obvious that God was working. But what did they do? They didn't believe, so they didn't see it. They didn't see what was going on. Don't we do the same thing today? We can walk outside, look up at the sky at night on a clear night, see all the stars. How can you not know that there's not a God that created all that? How can we not know? It's unbelief. It blinds us. If you look on the inside of us, we are so intricately woven together. It's amazing that we can even function. Each individual cell has so many sodium potassium pumps pumping through them. How can they even work? It just doesn't happen. People have to suppress that truth and have unbelief and they're blinded by it. Just like Romans chapter 1 says, Romans 1.18 says that people suppress the truth. The truth is right there in front of them. They just don't want to believe it. Unbelief blinds us. Verse 55 says, Is this not the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James, Jose, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? So they were offended at him. What do they do? They got a bitter heart. Their hearts are filling with poison. They're attacking Jesus' family. Isn't that what we do as well? When we don't believe, the family of God gets attacked. People get bitter towards other people in the church. We do the same thing today that these people were doing back then. They were attacking Jesus' family. We do the same thing. We have a bitter heart towards people. Verse 58 says, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So what does that unbelief rob them of? It robs them of their joy. What would have happened if he would have done the miracles there that he was doing everywhere else? The sick in that town would have been healed. The lame would have been walking. The deaf would have been hearing. The blind would have been seeing. But that town didn't get those miracles. They didn't get that joy because of their unbelief. That unbelief robbed that town, robbed those people of their joy. So what does unbelief do? It blinds us. It puts a poison or a bitterness in our heart. And it robs us of our joy. So how do we cure that? How do we cure each one of those? Yeah, it's one of them. So how do we cure? How do we cure that blindness? What do we got to do? We got to simply pray to God. If you look back in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, the king of Assyria was attacking or trying to make plans to attack Israel. But every time he came up with a plan, God gave the word to Elijah. And Elijah went to the king and said, don't go here. Don't go there. He frustrated that king of Assyria. The king of Assyria figured, you know what? There's got to be one of us in here that's a spy. Which one is it? And they said, it's none of us. It's Elijah. God, Elijah keeps telling the king where we're going to be at. So he said, well, let's go get Elijah. So Elijah was in the town of Dothan. They surrounded that town at night. Elijah's servant went out and saw the army around them. He was full of fear. He went back and said, Elijah, what are we going to do? And what did Elijah do? Because remember, that servant's eyes were blinded. He prayed to God to open his eyes. God opened his eyes and he saw that the army of God was surrounding the army of Assyria. That unbelief that that guy had was blinding him. So what did Elijah do to fix it? He prayed. Prayer fixes that blindness. How do we fix a bitter heart? How do we fix that poison that's built up in us? What we have to do is we have to see the people that are around us covered in Jesus' blood just like we are. If we look at them covered in Jesus' blood just like Jesus, or just like God looks at them covered in Jesus' blood, how can we not help but have compassion for them? How can we not help but love them? If God died for us just like he died for them, what's the difference? If we look at them through God's eyes, how can we be bitter towards people? How can we have a poison in our heart towards people? Thirdly, how do we fix, that joy, uh, fix the uh, unbelief that robs us of our joy? It says in Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. We've got to be in His Word. We've got to know the promises of God. That's where our joy comes from. What is that reward that we get from God if we diligently seek Him? Is it a monetary reward? Is it success in this life? No, it's Him. That's the reward. If we are focused on Him, He will reveal Himself to us, and then we will be filled with joy. We will have the peace of God. That's where we're to be at. 
We're to be seeking Him through His Word. His promises. Uh, Back in Luke chapter 1, verse 19. It says, And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and who was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So what's happening? He didn't believe. So what happens? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, it says, I believe, therefore I have spoken. What's happening to Zacharias? He didn't believe, therefore he's not going to be able to speak. Unbelief robs us of our joy and makes it so that we're unable to speak. You will not be worshiping if you unbelieve, or if you don't believe, you will not be praising, you will not be rejoicing. If you don't have belief in your heart, you're not going to be doing any of those things. But if you do believe the word and the promises of God, you will speak, you will tell people around you, and you will rejoice. Zacharias did not, but notice. What did Gabriel tell him? Even though he did not believe, God's promise was going to go through. God's promises do not fail. Verse 21, it says, And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Verse 26 says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. So Mary, who's Mary? Says that she is betrothed to a man named Joseph. In the custom of that time, in Jewish custom, they went through three stages. They were, went through the engagement period, went through the espousal period or the betrothal period, and then were actually married. In the engagement period, it could happen at any time. It was usually designed, put together by the parents of the kids that were going to get married. The espousal period or the betrothal period occurred one year before the actual marriage. During that time, they were legally married. But they never came together physically. So you could get it separated during that time, but you actually had to go through the legal process of divorce. And that is where Mary and Joseph are at right now. Then the third stage would be the actual marriage, the actual consummation of the marriage. Uh, most scholars put Mary between the age of 14 and 16, which is the most common, was the common age when girls got married at that time. Now I want you to look here real quick in verse 28. It says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. That The Greek word for highly favored one is keratajo. If you look and you do search throughout the scriptures, that word is only used twice. Keratajo. It's used here, and it's used in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, He made us keratajo, highly favored. So not only is Mary highly favored with the Lord, but we are as well. Why? Mary was highly favored because Christ was in her. 
So why are we highly favored? It's not because of who I am. I'm full of sin. We're all full of sin. That's not why I'm highly favored. So why am I highly favored? It's because of where I am that I'm highly favored. Where am I? I'm in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. It's because I am in Christ. It's because I am in Christ. Mary was highly favored because Christ was in her. I am highly favored because Christ is in me. Verse 29 says, But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting is this. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? So is Mary doing the same thing? Is she doing the same thing that Zacharias just did? What did Zechariah ask? He said, how shall I know this? What does Mary ask? She said, how can this be? They're two different questions. Zechariah is saying, oh, he's saying, oh, come on, I'm an old man. There's no way that this is going to happen. How shall I know this? Zechariah was full of unbelief. We're going to see that Mary is full of belief here in a minute. But she's not questioning whether the statement is true or false. She's just asking, how is this going to happen? That's all she's asking. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who was to be born will be called the Son of God. So what does Gabriel tell her? How does he answer the question? He doesn't give her all the physiological aspects of how it's going to occur. He just says, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit's going to take care of it. That's what we've got to realize. God will take care of it. We don't need to know how everything is going to come about. Verse 36, it says, Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for, who, for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She believed. Gabriel told her the news and she believed. Zechariah did not. He didn't believe. He was full of unbelief. Verse 39, it says, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now, this next thing that comes about, let's, let's, let me back up for a second. What would you do? What would you do if you were in Mary's shoes? If an angel came to you and you got the news that uh, 
Mary got. Would you be bummed or would you be happy? Would you be encouraged or would you be discouraged? Because let's just think it through. How's it going to affect her with everybody around her? What's going to happen with her and Joseph? She doesn't know. It very well could be that Joseph's not going to believe her and that she's going to lose him. What about her dad and mom? Are they going to believe her? What about her reputation in the community? Because of this, the people in the community are going to always look at her differently. She's going to always be looked down, down upon from that point on in her life. So, Mary could have been extremely bummed. But she's not. She's not bummed at all. Why? Who did she trust in? She trusted God. She knew His word. She knew His promises. Mary is somebody that knows God's word inside and out, as we're going to see in a minute. She, in that time, women could not go to Bible school. So she did not go to Bible school. But she knew the Old Testament inside and out, as we're going to see in a second. What we're going to look at here is a hymn or a prayer that she gives. If you look at it and you look at each individual verse in there, they are direct quotes out of the Old Testament. It's one scripture strung together after another. The only way she could have known that is to have spent time in the Word. She knew God's Word. Let's look at it. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. What's the difference between her soul and her spirit? What's the difference between our soul and our spirit? Your soul is your mind or your emotion. It's your personality. Your spirit is the real you that will live on forever in eternity. So your soul relates to people. It's your mind, emotions, personality. Your spirit relates to God. It's the deepest part of who you are. Our body relates to the physical earth around us. So what's she saying? She's saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. It is a statement of will. She's saying, I will declare the greatness of God. She's making a conscious decision to do it. Why? Because my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So what has happened to Mary? She's saying that she's going to consciously declare God's glory because of what has happened to her spirit. So what's happened to her? An angel came to her. God has elected her to be the mother of, this, of our Savior. So her spirit has rejoiced because of what the Lord has done for her. Now she's choosing for her soul to magnify the Lord. It's a choice. It's a choice that we have to make every day. We can come in here on Wednesday night on Sunday morning with a bad attitude and say, you know what, I don't feel like worshiping today. It's not what she's doing. No matter what's going on in her life, she says, I'm going to choose to magnify the Lord. It's a choice that we have to make. And why does she make that choice? It's because of what the Lord has done for her. So, what the Lord has done for me will be the motivation for me to worship Him. It has nothing to do with how I feel right now. It's all about what God has done for me. 
So when we realize that our sins are forgiven, when the gospel truly hits us, when we realize what Jesus has done for us, how can I not help but want to worship Him? How can I not help but want to magnify Him? How can I help but not want to glorify Him? That's what it's about. She is making that conscious choice. Even though we're in that tight spot, like the Israelites were backed into the Red Sea, you can still choose. You can still choose to glorify God. You can still choose to magnify Him. It goes on in the hymn, or in her prayer, it says, For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. He and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. If you go through each of these verses, she's quoting out of Psalms, she's quoting out of Habakkuk, she's quoting out of 1 Samuel, she's quoting out of Genesis. She knows the Old Testament. They aren't all in order. She knows it well enough that she can go from one verse here to one verse here to one verse here. She knows it. She knows the Word just like we need to know God's Word. We need to know what God's promises are. We're called to know His Word so that we can take it to the people around us that don't know. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Now, Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. And she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There was no one among your relatives who was called by this name. So they made signs to his father. What he should have, what what he would have him called. So notice, remember, Zechariah couldn't speak because of his unbelief. Because he didn't believe, he was unable to speak. You know, I only speak when I believe. If I truly believe that God died for me, aren't I going to tell people? If I don't believe, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to be silent just like Zacharias is. If I truly believe that people are really going to go to hell if they don't believe in Jesus, am I not going to tell them? If I truly believe, I'm going to speak. I can't help but speak. If I don't believe, then I'm not going to say anything. If I believe, I will speak. Now notice here, what's going on? They made signs to Zacharias. Why would they do that? If he could speak, or if he couldn't speak, Gabriel said nothing about him not being able to hear. It's obvious that he's deaf as well. So not only is he mute, he's deaf. Why? Why is that the case? If I don't believe, I won't speak. And if I don't speak, I am no longer able to hear the voice of my father. So Zacharias didn't believe. So he couldn't speak. Since he couldn't speak, he could no longer hear. When I'm speaking, when I'm teaching, when I'm pouring out, that is when I hear God 
most clearly. If I continually just take in and take in and take in, if I just come to Bible study after Bible study after Bible study without giving it back out, not telling the people around me, I become stagnant. Then I don't hear my father anymore. I've got to be in the place where I'm giving back out. We've got to be cups that are overflowing, giving the word back out. We're not just here to take it in. We're here to take it out to the people that are around us. Zechariah couldn't speak, therefore he couldn't hear. It says, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. So what happened when he wrote on the tablet? He was able to express that he actually believed. He says, you know what? I believe. I believe it. It happened. I believe what God said. As soon as he did that, he was able to speak and he was able to hear. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these things were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, bring, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So, what Zechariah is saying, he's giving John's mission here. He's telling John what John's life is going to be for. John is to prepare the way for the Lord's coming, he's to prepare the way for the Lord's first coming. What's the church's responsibility? We're to prepare the people around us to prepare the way for the Lord's second coming. We need to go out and tell people about the Lord. We need to go out and tell them what's coming. Zechariah gives John three specific things here to do, and I think they apply to us as well. It says in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of God. So what's he supposed to do? He's supposed to go out and tell people. He's supposed to tell them that their sins are going to be forgiven. We need to be telling people that their sins are forgiven. We need to be telling them that Jesus died for their sins. All of it is paid for. We get to tell them the good news. We get to go out and tell them the gospel. We need to tell them that their sin has been taken care of through the mercy of God. Just like John was to take that information out. Verse 79, the second thing that John was to do, was to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. He was to take that light to the people. That's what we're to do. How do we do that? 
How are we to be a light to the people? Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We can share the truth of God's word with people. We are to take that light to them. The scripture is light to this dark world. We need to take it to them. Verse 79, or the second half of verse 79, the third thing that uh, Zechariah gives to John says, to guide our feet into the way of peace. You were to give direction to people. You know, people are wandering around aimlessly. Where should I go? What should I do? How do I know what God's will is? What way should I go? Colossians 3 says, Let the peace of Christ rest in your heart. So if we follow the peace of the Lord, we're going to have peace in our heart. We've got to follow God. The peace will guide your steps, and Jesus will guide our way. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.